21 CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Run Your Life podcast. And as always, thanks for tuning in. The whole purpose behind this podcast is to share stories from the world of education and beyond of people who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their lives through their work, whatever that work may be. Regardless of what it is my guests do, they all have very unique perspectives that have shaped who they are and how they make sense of their world through their work. The guest you will hear today, Dr. Scott Kretschmar, has been on my show before, and I'm very happy that he took me up on the invitation to come back onto the podcast. The first time I had him on the show was about 18 months ago, and in that episode, we really dug deeply into the work that he has done in the field of physical education. In particular, the importance of helping every young person find joy and delight in their physical education experiences. When I think back on that podcast, it was amazing to speak with him. And one of my favorite parts in that first episode with Scott was when he said this. So it takes a very skillful physical educator to bring a person along. I almost see it like an apprentice relationship. You know, when you have a, a student early on, they don't know what's there. They don't know what's inside the kingdom doors. Yeah. And you're promising them there's some really special stuff in there. <laughs> Trust me, I'm going to take you by the hand. It may take a little while before you start seeing the things that I know are there. But trust me. And so uh, it involves some things that are no mystery to us kinesiologists about taking time to get into the kingdom. And um, I wish I knew some buttons. I wish I could press a button with some of my kids and put them into the golf kingdom or put them into the biking kingdom or the skateboarding kingdom, as you're talking about. Yeah. But usually it's harder than that. Usually it takes some time. Uh, but with persistence and skillful teaching, we can start opening the doors. And even after the kids leave us, once they've been inside that building, even if it's the, the foyer, <laughs> the front, yeah. And they get a glimpse. They'll keep going, and uh, even without us, and that's my big hope. Such a beautiful metaphor for the work that we do as physical educators. If we can inspire young people to find joy through movement, it can change their lives forever. In our first podcast, Scott also emphasized that every person has their own story and narrative when it comes to physical activity. And he asks us all to really think about what those stories are and how those narratives have changed over time. I recorded part two with Scott about a month ago, and in part two, we dive right into a discussion about the importance of keeping our playgrounds alive as long as possible in our lives. And he uses his own life as an example of this. Scott discusses in detail how his own narrative in regards to physical activity has changed. In particular, how it has changed over the last 18 months since our last podcast. And although he still strives to be uh, as active as possible, you will hear how Scott has had to modify his approach to being active over the last several months. Scott also talks about how an active lifestyle generates hopes, and he shares some of the hopes that he has in his ongoing narrative of being someone who has embraced physical activity in his life. It was great to hear Scott reflect on some of the early days of his teaching, and in this episode, he describes some of the things he tried out in his own teaching and how he learned the importance of translating mechanical instructions into 
feel instructions as a teacher and how this allowed him to move away from being strictly focused on the technique side of learning skills to allowing students to feel what it was like to execute certain techniques and different tasks and activities he had designed for them in PE. It was so good to have Scott back on my show and to reconnect with him. I loved my conversations with him, and it's my hope that you will find a lot of value in this discussion. Scott is in my thoughts this week as he went in for a hip replacement surgery on February 27th. Scott, if you are listening to this, I wish you the speediest of recoveries and hope that you are back on your bicycle soon and back out there golfing as soon as spring arrives. If you find value in this episode, drop Scott a line by email and let him know. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. His email is in the show notes of this episode. Okay, everyone, thanks again for tuning in. And with that, Let's dive right into my discussion with the inspiring Dr. Scott Kretschmar. Okay, Scott, it is uh, wonderful to have you back on my podcast. I really appreciate your time. I know right now it's minus 20-something in, at uh, Penn State University, and uh, you know there's a lot of weather-related issues uh, that you're dealing with, but thanks for being on the show. I'm very delighted to be here, and yes, the weather is uh, preventing me from going to any of my outdoor playgrounds. Yeah, and and last time, um, we had a great conversation last time, and I think that was about 18 months ago, and uh, a lot of the feedback that I had received from that podcast was overwhelmingly positive, and um, the, the conversation really resonated with many researchers and PE teachers. Um, so I just wanted to share that feedback with you. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the things that you, you said to me at the, at the start of the podcast, you referred to um, the idea that philosophers are good at interrogating human experience. And that idea of, you know, it really is about interrogating human experience, and that would, that's what life is all about. So what I want to ask you is, if you had to interrogate your own human experience over the last 18 months since our last podcast, what have you learned about yourself? Wow. Um, first of all, I do keep learning about myself. Uh, that's both scary and, and hopeful because yeah. I think our life journeys are occasions for continuous growth and maybe even continuous improvement. So even though I'm now in my senior years, uh, I'm learning a lot. Um, one of the things that has occurred to me is that certain exercise uh, regimens uh, can actually be very meaningful. You know that I'm a playground person. Yes. And so some people interpret that to mean I'm in favor of play, I'm in favor of frivolity, I'm in favor of joyous movement, which I am, but that means I'm against exercise. I'm against jumping jacks and treadmills and other places where we, we have exercise. But I think I'm learning that we can't write those places off quite so quickly. Um, I have to be more open to the possibility that playgrounds can be built in all kinds of places, even unlikely places. So, you know, during our winter weather here, I'm forced to um, work out inside. Usually I would get on my bike and ride around the lovely hills we have here in Pennsylvania, or I would go out and jog um, on some of the wooded paths we have here. And uh, in the colder weather and the fact that I'm senior and I don't want to fall anymore, uh, I'm moving more indoors to safer places. So my story has changed a little bit, mm -hmm. and I'm finding certain exercise routines to be meaningful. Um, they add to my story. 
as somebody who wants to keep moving well, even though he's getting to be very senior. So I think uh, because we're storytelling creatures and, and we live stories, we physical educators need to be open to all kinds of different movement stories. And um, I think I need to be a little bit more generous to certain exercise kinds of places, even though deep down I still feel they're not the best places to grow playgrounds, but they're possible places. Right, and, and that makes a lot of sense, and that aligns with your fundamental philosophy that you shared in my last episode, which was exactly as you said, and, and to quote you, you said that you keep your playgrounds alive as long as you can, and as you're constricted by weather right now, and you understand the need, your story is all about movement and the need for movement. So you're looking for whatever means you can to to exercise and move. So, you know, there's a shift in your story, but I'm sure that as soon as the snow clears, you're going to be back on the bike and back around um, outdoors. Yeah, I certainly am planning on it. I have a hip operation coming up in uh, three weeks, hip replacement. And so it was a difficult decision uh, because I'm not in extreme pain right now. But I'm finding that very subtly I'm not doing the things I used to do. And it's not just because of normal aging, it's because of pain. Right. And so as a philosopher and phenomenologist, I'm sort of interrogating my life patterns and I'm noticing that I'm not doing things I used to do, even though I don't recollect making any decisions uh, per se, you know, not to do them. So uh, one of the marvels of modern medicine is that uh, we can replace body parts and uh, extend our our movement lives. So I'm going into this with high hopes. It's uh, February 27th. I have the greatest orthopedic surgeon here ready to take care of me. And uh, after a little bit of recovery time, I'll be back out on my bike, uh, hopefully. Uh, I'll have to listen to him about whether I'm allowed to jog or not. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> right, but that's, that's, um, that's great. And, you know, modern technology has allowed people to, to thrive, still continue to thrive after hip repl- replacements and, and operations such as that. And I guess one of the things I want to ask you is that you know what it feels like. You know, you talked in the last podcast about writing a research paper on on kind of the, the uh, power that uh, or the impact that cycling can have on your life. Um, so I know that cycling oh. means. Can you hear me? Yeah, you uh, cut out for a second. Okay. So I was just saying that I know how important cycling is to you, and you talked about this the the last podcast, and you know what it feels like to go for a long bicycle ride and then get back to the house, and that the the impact that that, that bicycle ride had, can it can have an impact for hours after on you emotionally and 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 uh, and socially as well that those good feelings that come as a result so when you exercise indoors now do you feel the impact of that exercise afterward on you definitely um i sleep better <laughs> i feel better um my body feels more alive and um I guess my my goals and hopes are kind of revitalized too after a nice uh, spin on my basement bicycle, and uh, you know I come away sweating, take a shower, and say I can still do this. And I was going to mention that I think one of the important things about an, an active lifestyle are, uh, is that it, it generates new hopes. And even though my hopes today are diminished from the hopes I had when I was a 25-year-old and a very active athlete, the hopes work the same way. And so now I have a goal of doing a 100-mile bike ride in early June out in Kansas. It's called a gravel ride. Mm -hmm. Uh, My son and I are going to go out there and ride together. And I don't know if I'll make it or not. Uh, maybe my recovery will be a little bit too slow to, to make 100 miles by June 1. 
But the fact that I have the hope, the fact that I have that goal, I think is therapeutic in itself because uh, it shapes my life uh, rather than just living day by day. I have that kind of thing out there and say, I wonder if at 75 after putting in a new hip, yeah. <laughs> I can make 100 miles in the hot weather out in Emporia, Kansas. So I think those are the kinds of kind of fringe benefits that you have as an, an active person. Your life gets shaped by the, the hopes you have for the future. Right. And the last podcast we talked, you were you were talking specifically about going on a 400-mile bike ride with your daughter that, that summer. It was going to be the, I think we recorded in March or something, so it was going to be a few months after. Did you end up going on that cycle? Yes, <laughs> but we didn't make it. And the reason is uh, that uh, she was out of shape. I hope she doesn't hear this podcast. Uh, But also, we ran into remarkably cold weather, a freakish storm, and uh, we had not prepared in terms of our clothing and so forth uh, to survive that kind of weather. (laughs) So about uh, 200 miles into the ride, uh, we, we called for a sag wagon uh, to pick us up because it was just uh, devastatingly cold. So uh, we made it a, a couple hundred miles, <laughs> but I still have that longer ride uh, out there as a, as a possibility. I'm going to do the 100 mile first and see how that goes. Right. And <clears throat> when you think of the 100 miler, um, describe some of the the feelings because you know again with goal setting and goal setting is huge for people who embrace movement right it's all about are you going to run the next marathon or um, triathlon or are you going whatever it is you're going to do you have a right. goal and can you describe when you when you project forward and you think about that hundred mile ride with your son describe some of the feelings or thoughts that you have as you mentally kind of prepare for that experience? Yeah, I think um, I see it as a continuation of my story. Um, It's a fun story because it's a challenging story. (laughs) And uh, I guess it's, it's hard for me to picture life you know, without these kinds of uh, hills to climb metaphorically. (laughs) And as a movement person, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I still enjoy moving when many of my contemporaries are in front of television sets uh, or, you know, basically uh, become totally sedentary. So uh, it adds a lot of life and joy and interest to my life and doing it with my son is a particular joy uh, because he's young younger and um, you know to be able to do that with a person a generation younger than me is very meaningful not many fathers can do that and so uh, I want to work hard I want to play hard (laughs) to get in shape uh, so that I can uh, enjoy that ride with him. And so I'm going to listen to my physical therapist and try to behave yeah. and not overdo it. Uh, but I'm not a good candidate to listen to my physical therapist, I have to say. Well, that's okay, because sometimes they tell us to uh, they're overly cautious instead of just letting us get on with it. So I think you know, you'll know the right decisions to make and you'll make them. But when you speak about your son, I just want to share a quick story with you. And, you know, I'm a very avid golfer. I just told you uh, before hitting the record button that the European golf tour is in Saudi Arabia for the first time. And I'm a volunteer scorer for the weekend. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'll see Ernie Els and Sergio Garcia. Dustin Johnson is here. Justin Rose. All of the world's... uh, Brooke Kapka. They're all here. So I'm going to get a chance maybe not to meet them, but stand in close proximity. And the organizers of the tournament say that there's more volunteers than spectators. So um, it's going to be a great experience. But golf has been a very important part of my life. And I, 
I had a dream when I had, I have two sons, 15 and 13 years old, and I had a dream when I had them that they would, you know, embrace golf like I did and that as I aged, I would be playing golf with them. But to be honest, they just did not find any kind of joy or delight in the golf experience. But in the last three weeks, my oldest son has now started to embrace golf. And he's asking me every day to take him out to the course. The course is only 400 meters from our house. And um, I played six holes with him last night. He wanted to go out tonight, but I told him I was recording with you. So he's out playing by himself right now. And um, he's really open to me helping him with his game. And it's such a bonding experience. And when you, you know, you talk about love and connection and bonding, when you can enter movement into that, it's so much more meaningful. So can you speak to that idea of uh, love and connection and movement and, and the importance of just um, kind of bringing them all together? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one thing to run or jog with your buddies, but another to do it with your own kids. And to see them uh, enjoy the kinds of playgrounds that you enjoy is one of the successes of parenthood. And, and we know our kids are not going to be um, carbon copies of us. <laughs> we don't want them to be carbon copies of us. But the other side of us says, says something like, I found so much joy in this place. I know it's a magical place. I know it's a wonderful place. I hope you get to experience that too. And uh, sometimes they do that and sometimes not. And I ran cross country in college, so I had some experience with uh, distance things, but uh, I was a baseball basketball player, so I wasn't really a distance kind of person. And frankly, I went out for cross country just to get in shape for basketball, which wasn't a good idea, I learned later. But the communication and the love goes both ways. And so we introduce our kids to playgrounds because we're the senior partner, we're the parents. But what happened to me was when my kids started growing up, they got into events that I didn't uh, participate in that much as a younger person, being baseball, basketball. And uh, my son got into biking, distance biking, and I remember one of our first rides outside of State College nearly killed me. Yeah. I mean, we only went about 18 miles, which today would be a warm-up. But back then, it was a warm day. It was a hot day. I was cramping up. I said, honey, why do you want to ride this far? I mean, yeah. this is terrible. Yeah. Well, you know, thousands of miles later, um, I have to thank him and say, he introduced me to one of his playgrounds. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I've had the, the joy going both ways of uh, sharing my loves of movement with them and having them uh, do the same thing with me. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, um, you know, in our last podcast, you, we talked about, you know, one of the things that really moved me, um, and, and I must admit it, it brought a tear to my eye, is how you described um, the idea of taking students by the hand and leading them into the doors of the kingdom to show them what's possible in there. And you mentioned specifically that it takes a very persistent and skillful practitioner to lead them into the kingdom doors. So what I want to ask you, I want to segue into great teaching and that idea of persistence and skillful teaching. So if you were to teach a course purely on those two concepts of, of uh, persistence and skillful teaching, how would you unpack that? What do you mean by persistence and skillful teaching? Can you, can you speak more deeply to the, those two things? Well, I think teachers are basically models. You know, we interact with another human being and we say with due humility, we know some really cool stuff and uh, we'd like to share it with you. Uh, we need you to participate. You know, this isn't a one-way thing. Y you have to want it too. So I would like your attention. I would like your energy. I would like 
you know, you to uh, hold my hand in a sense and and follow me uh, where I'm going to to lead you. Mm-hmm. And um, I think too that when I introduce new sports, I try to show a great deal of respect for the sport uh, by what I said and and how I acted. Um, even though I was good at some of the sports I taught, I was never world-class or anything like that. And so you have to show a degree of humility uh, that you, too, are still entering the kingdom, even though you're further in the building than the yeah. students are, and that you learn things, too. And so I think students appreciate the fact that while I'm their mentor, while I'm their, their leader, I'm still also on my own journey of enjoying and discovering uh, what lies inside the doors of the of the kingdom. The persistence part is sometimes uh, difficult, and I think at times, uh, for example, when I taught table tennis, um, there were times when I just simply had to ask the students to. to persist in some of the exercises that I knew were building blocks to moving forward. Uh, I would say things like, I don't know any magic buttons to push. Mm -hmm. We have to develop certain perceptual hand-eye coordination skills to get to the next step, to get to a place where this is fun. And I would try to structure it in a way so that the repetitions weren't arduous. Yeah. You know, I didn't crack a whip or whatever. So I guess that's part of the skill of teaching is how do you get the repetitions you need while it's still fun, while it's still interesting, while it's still enjoyable? And so uh, when I would start a lesson sometimes in table tennis, in my mind, I knew I had to get the reps in. I had to get the students hitting the ball in a certain way to get the feel Mm -hmm. of what it's like to do a certain kind of shot. And, uh, you know, it it would take a while, but sometimes even with building blocks in table tennis one of the shots is called a push shot it's not a very sexy shot it works but it's a basic (laughs) shot you can't be a good table tennis player without an excellent push shot and I tell you sometimes at the end of those classes where we're working on a building block like that uh, you know we would do you know see if you can do 20 push shots in a row without you know it going off the table or into the net see if you can do 30 yeah. And then we'd laugh about it because somebody would, you know, would watch each other and so forth. You can turn it into a, an enjoyable environment while the teacher knows the kids are getting in the repetitions they need to get further into the kingdom. And then you can do some other things. They need reps there, too, to get further into the kingdom. So uh, sometimes it's a very... Um, straightforward task of how do you get in the repetitions in a joyful, interesting kind of way uh, and persist so that they start feeling the cool things that you feel when you have creativity, for example, in your push shot. You're not just mechanically doing it anymore. You and I know what that feels like when you sort of cross that threshold from just mechanically doing it or fearfully doing it or haltingly doing it to doing it as a free flow, as a, as a part of you. And um, it feels so much more wonderful when you get to that stage. But again, there are no magic buttons that you can push uh, to get there. You have to walk the walk. And so there's some, some classes where, you know, it wasn't all, you know, joy and flowers and uh, singing kumbaya. Uh, there were some times when it was just damn hard and uh, we had to get over a hurdle and we did it together. Uh, and then afterwards, the kids would look back and say, you know, I'm glad you pushed me on that because <laughs> I didn't know what was on the other side of the hurdle. Yeah, that's that's great, and and it's very interesting that you talk about that because, again, I think what you're describing is that, you know, the non-negotiable of of building the skills to be able to break through to the next level to find more enjoyment, and 
One of the things that we we try to do here um, in our department in, in PE is is to allow every student to find their entry point to learning in relation to what skills they need to develop to move forward. And it's something that we've had some success with. So if students aren't ready for the push shot, then maybe it's mm-hmm. using a different implement with a different ball to work on right. basic hand-eye. But it's kind of that allowing every student to find that entry point to learning, we feel really intru- can, leads to more intrinsic motivation because they can have success. And I think one of the things that's still being done in PE programs is that skill development is, of course, a part of everyday um, life and physical education. But when there is no differentiation, you have kids failing at such an incredible rate that they lose motivation. So I guess, can you speak to that idea of planting the seeds for for, um, students to find that just right entry point to their own learning and how that might work to uh, increase motivation? Sure. Um, I read a lot of Zen Buddhist stuff, and it's it's sort of screwed me up, but (laughs) I love it. And uh, it's affected my teaching, and uh, it's affected it in the following ways, that I sometimes see... Uh, the students fixated on success, you know, and understandably, they want the ball to go over the net in table tennis. They want the pitch shot to land near the target in golf. And they're so anxious that you, you've taught golf, you know that sport, they'll hit and look up right away yeah. because they're so interested in did my shot go into the air and did it land where the target is. And in table tennis, one of the hindrances to moving forward is the damn table because it's so small and kids when they're on the journey to get into the table tennis kingdom are so worried about hitting the table and they get so upset when they miss the table that it can get in the way of learning so after we've done the push shot and we get further down the road maybe a few weeks into the semester Uh, We start doing the more exciting shots. Uh, It's called a loop shot, where you put terrific topspin on a ball uh, to get it to go over the net fast and hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, the table is a problem because when most kids start doing the loop shot, the ball goes all over the place. Mm -hmm. But I want them to experience their bodies, the way it feels to go all out to put topspin on a table tennis ball. So we get rid of the tables, and we play on the floor. Excellent. And so when people come in and watch that part of the class, they see these people standing on a gym floor, whacking away at these balls with no tables around. <laughs> they wonder what's going on. But what's going on is the kids are learning what it's like to take a good rip at a ball up the back of the ball so you put topspin on it, sort of like tennis in that way. You rip up the back of the ball. And it's a great feeling because you start down near the floor and you come up on the back of that ball and you finish up over your head. And it's terrific when you get it right. But the table gets in the way because the ball doesn't obey you until you get to be a better player. Mm-hmm. So we, we do a lot of practice without the the table there and when I taught golf sometimes I would have them stand over their ball when we're working on a a pitch shot of say 20 yards and uh, just as they were ready to pull their club back from the ball I'd have them close their eyes (laughs) uh, with mixed results but uh, the point again was take away the target yeah let them feel let them feel the swing and remarkably even in in golf some of the kids got better results with their eyes shut than with them open because they could just feel the club falling into the back of the ball and letting the club do the work of lifting it. And um, so there are tricks like that that you can use to reduce the stress, to reduce the quote-unquote success anxiety that students have while they are building their, their motor feel 
so they know what it feels like to hit a ball right. And then they can open their eyes again, or I can put the table back again. And the ball's going pretty close to the table most of the time. And uh, a good part of it, it hits the table. So that's another progression kind of thing. Yeah, and this is great. This is a great thing that I want to share with you. And, and I listened to every word you just said. And as I was listening to you describe that whole table tennis kind of um, kind of description of, of what it looks like during the lesson and then putting topspin on it, um, I just want to share with you that I've done, you know, I've over the past two, two or three years, I've really gotten into um, performance psychology and sports psychology. And and I've actually traveled to Scotland on two separate occasions, and I um, worked um, intensively with a former European Tour golf coach. He was on the European Tour for 16 years, and he, huh. he he's coached a number of the the Europe's best golfers. And I got to spend four days with him, and I had one-on-one instruction with him. His name is Gary Nicol. And um, he works closely closely with uh, one of the European Tour's uh, top sports psychologists. His name is Dr. Carl Morris. And um, they've developed this kind of framework for how they work with uh, golfers of all ability. And um, they the, the work that I did uh, with them, so I've worked with both of them. So I do a little bit of work with Dr. Carl Morris um, virtually on Skype learning about peak performance and I it's just amazing discussions with them and I've had both of them on my podcast so I'll share the links with you but what um, Gary says when he coaches players and Carl when he works with European tour players is he gets them and this is applicable to to anybody learning anything right in in terms of movement but they get their their players to ask themselves two questions. So you imagine that you're about to hit a golf ball. The first question you want to ask yourself is, what kind of shot do I do I need to hit here? Right? And mm-hmm. and as you ask yourself the question, instead of visualizing, when you answer that question, it's going to be an automatic visualization because you're going to as you answer that question, you're going to picture the shot that you need to hit, right? So that's the, right. Fir- that's the first question you ask yourself. Immediately, you follow it up with, how does my body need to feel to create that shot? So there's no talk about technique whatsoever, right? So as you step into the golf ball, you already have a clear image of the the shot that you want to hit, and you actually have a feel for how you want your body to to move in order to create that shot. So I've been putting this into practice. You know, I've played golf my whole life. But since really diving deeply into this pre, I use it in my pre-shot routine, I am, mm-hmm. I am now replicating more often than I ever have. I'm replicating the shot that I visualized and, wow. and the, the feel of creating that shot. So I'm starting to be able to shape the ball off the tee like I can, I can fade it more and draw it more off the tee just by simply going through the process of not thinking about technique, but to to think about those two questions. And what you describe is exactly that. You move the table away and you want the kids to experience what their bodies feel like to create topspin on the ball. So it's no longer outcome-based, it's feel-based, process-based. So speak more about that idea that it learning about movement is not outcome based it's more about process and feel and and that idea of um, visualizing what you want to achieve well it's <laughs> i don't know if i told you this during the previous podcast once i went into uh table tennis uh, class i'll stay with that sport and I told myself I was going to teach a whole lesson without uttering a single word. I love it. <laughs> I don't recommend this necessarily for your listeners <laughs> or for other phys ed teachers, but I wanted to see how compromised my lesson would be if I didn't talk, if I just gestured, you know, pointed, uh, gave a 
you know, played myself to show them a certain shot and so forth. So I went through a whole 50-minute class without saying hi. <laughs> I told the students beforehand what I was going to do so they knew why I was behaving so oddly. But after I told them what I was doing, I went through the whole class, and I was surprised to learn that I didn't compromise that much. I was able to teach a lesson uh, without yakking. But um, the uh, the talk thing, I think, is one of our, oh, I don't know what you want to call it. it. It's a distraction. It We overemphasize it. We put too much um, stake in it because we're quote-unquote rational beings. Yeah. <laughs> if I tell them, they will do. No. We phys ed teachers know you tell them and they won't do <laughs> because... They're translating words into feel, and they're different domains. I mean, words can help make it feel like, and you use a metaphor. So metaphorical words uh, are better than literal words. But still, the bottom line is the performer, if they want to move into the kingdom, have to feel. They have to get the feel right. And one of the places where this was brought home to me most is that some of the movements you need in sport are paradoxical. That is, left to your own devices, you would do it a different way. I'm not sure how that translates into golf, but <laughs> sometimes people who have a bad slice aim more and more to the left. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, in terms of physics, that's exactly the wrong thing you want to do exactly. <laughs> because you cut across the ball even more. Yeah. In table tennis, our natural tendencies are to hit through the equator of the ball, that is, hit it flat, because we see something coming at us, like at baseball, we want to hit it right in the middle. Yeah. And in table tennis, that doesn't work very well most of the time. And so I'm trying to teach a feel that doesn't feel right to them. How do I do that? Because when a ball comes to them, their natural instincts take over, as it were, and they take a wrong swing. So sometimes I would do this. I would walk up behind a person and say, is it all right if I grab your wrist? And uh, if I got permission, especially with uh, the, the ladies in class, I would have the person at the other side of the table hit a ball across. And then I would say, I would gently guide the person's wrist through the correct motion. And I say, feel this as we do it. And I would have the person maybe throw it five times in a row. And I would gently guide the person's hand and bat through the hitting zone so they could feel what it's like. Then I would step back, and I'd ask the person at the other side, do the same thing. And most of the time, the person would take the right mo movement through it. Now, you could look at that as robotics and say, you know, you're turning that person into a robot. No, anything but that. I'm introducing them to the right feel. Mm -hmm. And each person is going to swing a little bit differently. But... They get, the, they get in the right zone of what it feels like to hit a table tennis ball correctly. And uh, so with paradox, I call them paradoxical feels. Right. When you start, it's the wrong way to hit it. But when you're in the kingdom, it's the right way to hit it. <laughs> yeah. You just have to make that transition. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, again, what you're describing is has very little to do with explicit teaching of technique, but rather feel, right? Right. And, and Gary, um, the two coaches I told you about, uh, Gary Nicole and Dr. Carl Morris, they just um, released a best-selling golf book that they wrote together based on their work. It was released at the, um, during the, uh, the weekend before the Open Championship, and it's called The Lost Art of Putting. And, wow. and I'm going to, you know what, uh, I'm going to send you a copy because I want you to read this book because it's right up your alley. You will love this book. But that book, they, they made a pact when writing the book that there would be no photos in that book because they don't want to determine how people need to hold the putter when putting. They right. just, they want, it doesn't matter how you hold the putter. 
and there's there's very very little talk reference to actual technique at all. It's all about creating this magic like creative um, stroke when when you putt. It's all about enjoying the process of putting rather than being consumed by worrying about three putts and all of that. It's finding this magic and creativity on the greens that we all have within us if you develop a feel. So everything you're describing is about feel rather than technique. So when you talk talk about paradoxical feel, what is your advice to teachers who to this day still get way too caught up in breaking down technique to the very finest detail. Wow. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, my advice would be find some duct tape and <laughs> tape it from left ear to right ear across yeah. mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I think probably the first part is to become aware of how much you're talking. Uh, just to talk pragmatics here. Uh, some people who talk too much would say, gee, I didn't talk very much in that class. It's sort of like the golfer who said, did, did you keep your left side pretty stiff on that swing? And they say, yeah, coach, I did. And then you show them the videotape and they broke their left arm yeah. at 90 degrees. Yeah. I think a lot of teachers don't know what they're doing. And so um, they would say, oh, you know, I know it. we can't talk too much. I don't do it. So self-awareness would be one thing. Uh, I would encourage them to experiment, if not do a whole class without talking, do, do a lesson or do part of a lesson with less talk, with almost no talk. Come watch. Imagine what it feels like when you see this hit and then demonstrate the hit. What is it like? Um, do some shadow swinging. You know, without target, without ball. Mm -hmm. See what your arm feels like when you're doing this shadow swinging. Yeah. None of that is about start here and end there. <laughs> None of it's about, you know, here's the, the correct grip. It's about the feel of it. Mm -hmm. And so I would ask them to translate their mechanical instructions to feel instructions. If you were taking a person on a journey of feel... Where do you start? Where do you finish? And I think that uh, at least veteran teachers, or I should say teachers who know the sport that they're teaching, the activity they're teaching, when they think about it, they'll be able to come up with a kind of feel progressions. So, um, you know, most of our progress progression books talk about activities. You start with simple activities where there's a high probability of success, and you go to a little bit more complicated activity, and then a little more complicated activity. And they don't talk about it in terms of feel. Here's the, the basic feel that we have to get. Here's another feel that comes a little bit later. Um, the feel on the golf club, for example, how hard you grip it. Mm -hmm. Where, where does that feel come in in the progression of feels in hitting a golf ball well? A lot of people overgrip, uh, but where does that feel come in? And uh, I think that teachers, if they reconceptualize their lessons in terms of feel, I think they could come up with some uh, pretty creative ideas. Yeah, that that you know, you've really um, you've really sparked my curiosity there describing that because I've never really looked at it like that so that's kind of a, a new insight I mean I know the importance of feel and I just talked about it with the golf uh, but to actually focus instruction more uh, to create teacher questions teacher inquiry questions with students that are more based in feel rather than technique and and as you say like You've, you've got to feel when you start to have success regardless of any whatever sport it is or whatever it is you're learning you begin to have success when you can feel what it feels like to do it properly and properly is a I'm saying that very loosely because Arnold Palmer swung the club very properly but it was in a very unique way right 
So Correct. it's a great way to look at teaching and really challenge teachers, A, as you said, to talk way less and to develop a repertoire of, of feel questions that you can ask rather than technique questions. So I think that's a really cool insight that can be great for teachers. And part of the work that I do, Scott, is I go in and I collect data on teacher instruction. And I don't work with only PE teachers. I work with music and visual arts teachers. But there's a common theme, even with experienced teachers, and it's the experienced teachers, when I draw their attention to this, they always just shake their head and they, they can't believe that they continue to do it. But it's, as you say, it's not just talking too much. But it's in uh, repeating instructions two to three times, you know, like the, just the same. They, they explain something and then they explain it again in different words and then they have to explain it one more time. Then they say, OK, kids, tell me what you have to do. And then the kids repeat it back. And before you know it, seven minutes of movement time is gone out the window because teachers have repeated instructions so long. So. There is some some really good stuff in there that you you mention about talking too much and feel and everything. But I want to jump over to: Have you written a new paper in the last uh, eighteen months? Yes, <laughs> uh, I can't I can't turn off the spigot, even though I've been retired for three and a half years now. <laughs> yeah. So I come into the office every morning around seven thirty, and. Uh, it's partly because I want to get here and I'm working on some cool ideas and I'm still reading books and trying to figure things out. And that's partly because my wife for 50 years has been used to me not being at home. Yeah. So uh, there's a there's a double win for me coming to the office. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm still writing and uh, still thinking. Uh, one of the papers that's in review now, so I don't know if it's going to get published, is a paper in which I... I praise um, physical activity as a hobby. I use the word hobby, and I read some things from uh, a fellow who wrote a book on hobbies and uh, actually had an op-ed in the New York Times about how we stress over excellence and uh, we're no longer allowed in our culture to just be okay at something. <laughs> we have to be really good at it, or uh, you know, we're somehow failures. And so it sort of struck me that sometimes in physical education, particularly in varsity sport, but even in phys ed, um, we have this sort of excellence mantra going. You know, you've got to get really good at this darn thing. But really, what we want more is that we want people to be good enough so they enjoy being there. I mean, to me, in a sense, that's the bottom line in physical education for the large population. I have nothing against excellence, believe me. But for the large population, the goal is getting them far enough into the building so they enjoy being there. So they go back again and again, and so that it adorns their life. And in this article, I talk about some of the guys that I golf with. I'm in a what's called the Burning Tea Golf League here mm. at State College. And this is a, a league of senior citizens. Uh, half of the people in the league are terrible golfers <laughs> in an objective sense. <laughs> they shoot around 100. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're all the way from 60s to 90s. They're still golfing. And you should see the joy on their face. Even the persons who shoot a hundred, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they can't wait to get out there. They can't wait to get the club in their hand. They can't wait to hit. It is a place that they like to be. It's it's a hobby. It's something that makes their life meaningful. It makes their life enjoyable. So they look forward to every Tuesday like it's the best day in the week. They're no good at it. <laughs> they're not. They're not great players, but they're good enough that they've caught the bug. And um, so that's a, a paper where I sort of attack some of the people in our literature. Uh, Bob Simon, a dear friend of mine who passed on uh, recently, said that our fundamental um, defense 
or apologetic for sport is what he called a mutual quest for excellence. So excellence, according to Bob Simon, is what redeems plain silly games. Right. I, I change that and I say joy, meaning, is what redeems plain silly games. And so that's, it was a celebration of sport as a hobby. And, and but included in that, I'm hearing you 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 say also, social interaction is a is an important piece of that. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of joking and so forth, but it's all around golf. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that's what brings us together. That playground is the cause for us to be together every Tuesday, and. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, we have a wide range of skills, but we have one thing in common. We love golf. Yeah, that's, that's great. And when I, when I think of, um, so I'll, I'll segue into the last part of the podcast, and I hope this isn't our last podcast because I, I definitely have so many more things I want to ask you, but I just wanted to kind of um, mention some of the great reflective questions that you posed in the last podcast and you asked teachers to reflect on on these questions how effective were you if you if you think about your teaching how effective were you in opening the kingdom doors that was one question you asked how effective were you toward leading these kids towards more meaningful experiences with movement and how does movement impact your soul and and all of these things all of these questions are are so deeply embedded in what it means to to embrace movement for life so i guess when you when you i have a, one more question i want to ask you that after this but um when you think about your own life and you think about your upcoming surgery and and you know recovering from your surgery and the idea of always having hope what is your biggest hope when you project forward the next few years in regards to your life and the movement, uh, the role that movement plays in your life? Wow. Um, you know, with all those questions, let me go with a couple of them and then uh, try to go to the last one. The um, success in teaching uh, is partly um, reflected in whether the kids want to keep doing it. Uh, when I had a class where I had to kick them out of the gym, when I got back to my office, I said, yes, <laughs> I had them. Yeah. They didn't want to leave. I had to say, you know, get out of here. Uh, so, you know, that's one of, the, one of the kind of symptoms. And then in terms of the socialization and being comfortable with one another. One of the things I would do is kind of counterintuitive in, in play, and that was have kids watch one another play. And at, at the start, some were very anxious about that. All eyes, the 20 other kids in the golf class were watching me chip. And it took them a while to get used to it. But then a, a, an amazing thing happened. They became comfortable with it. They enjoyed it. They laughed when somebody would duff a shot yeah. or something. And that's the way we want it to be. You know, golf and all sports are very visible, and so people can catch us in our mistakes. We have to get over that. We have to get comfortable with people watching our bodies and watching us do things that we don't want to do with a golf ball or with a table tennis ball. And relax. We're all human. That's the way it works. So I know we're coming to the end here, and you, you asked about, uh, you know, my own hopes and dreams. Um, I want to be one of the oldest people on the face of the earth who rides a ridiculous distance on my bike. Yeah. <laughs> a ridiculous distance. I don't know what that ridiculous distance is going to turn out to be, you know, and who I'm going to be with. Uh, maybe it would be with both of my kids. My wife doesn't bike, so it's not going to be with her. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's with both of my kids. Maybe it's with some other people that uh, I bike with. But 
I kind of picture that as being a really cool thing uh, five, ten years down the road. God willing, I'll still be here. Uh, as far as speaking to your soul, uh, whatever that means, um, I think it has to do with integrity and with teachers coming to grips with uh, who they are. And I've never been ashamed of being a physical educator. I've been proud of it. Mm-hmm. I would go into class and say, you know, they call me a kinesiologist, which is a really fancy word. It makes me sound kind of smart and so forth. But I'm really a professor of play. <laughs> I love it. And they would laugh. Yeah. And so I think um, your soul has to do with your integrity, with who you are at bottom, and uh, being willing to show it and not, uh, not hiding it, even though it might be more impressive to be something else <laughs> in the world than a PE teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm a PE teacher. Damn it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. It's a glorious profession. And um, so I guess that's, that's uh, how movement speaks to me today and will to my last breath, I hope. Uh, I love it. And professor of play. I love it. It's, it's, and it really is, you know, and I, I did a, a talk, uh, in Germany, um, uh, or sorry, Poland last year. And, and what, what I talked about, I gave the statistic that in, it's an alarming statistic, but in 2030, um, the world health organization predicts that suicide is going to be the leading cause of death. And, mm-hmm. and really, due to to loneliness and lack of movement you know and we're caught up in this world of of devices and and people are more concerned with connecting on devices rather than connecting in person and and doing meaningful things and and you know to be a physical educator in this time and age is the most important profession because you are trying to get get young people to embrace movement and move their bodies and connect with others and be outdoors. And that is what they need to be healthy from a social, emotional, and physical standpoint. So when you speak about being a physical education, uh, physical educator and being proud of it, it, you know, I I feel it completely in in my soul. So the last question that I want to ask you is this uh, before we wrap up. You talked about training to be a minister, and uh, at our last podcast, you said mm-hmm. that you were you had done enough time or, or training that you were a substitute minister. So, right. so have you gotten a chance to jump in there and give a talk yet? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have. Uh, I've uh, been in the pulpit. Oh. 20 times Excellent. in the fairly recent uh, past. Uh, one of the good things about being an itinerant minister is I go to about seven or eight different churches and I can use the same sermon. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> as, as long as I don't give the same one twice at the same church. So <laughs> I have a, a master sheet that I keep track of. But I have about uh, 12 sermons <clears throat> that I have uh, prepared. And I've enjoyed giving, and uh, some of them have to do with body and movement. (laughs) So they know that I'm a physical educator when I get into the pulpit. But, uh, yeah, it's something that's important to me. I've always been a person of faith. Uh, That's always meant a lot to me. And uh, so it's uh, an enjoyable sidelight now that I'm retired and I have uh, more free time on my hands. Yeah, and it definitely probably gives you a different sense of purpose. Yeah, it does. It's, uh, you know, uh, some of these small churches. I gave a, a sermon uh, the other day in a church, just so you can, you don't picture me in some big cathedral with thousands of people out there. Uh, I gave a, a sermon in a little village church, and there were four people there. Oh, great. That's great. <laughs> So, Scott, I, I, again, I, I thank you. And I, I, as I said, I hope this is not our last podcast. I hope I can, 
you know, over the next few months. I know you'll be busy with your recovery and your training, but maybe we can we can check in again in, in a few months' time, maybe before your 100-miler, um, and, and just talk more because I really enjoy these discussions with you. Well, thank you for including me in your podcast. It's, uh, it's humbling and uh, very enjoyable to talk with you. So uh, thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Scott. So just stay on the line as I just wrap up, and then I just want to talk a minute before uh, we, we part ways. So everybody, sure. th- thank you very much for tuning in to the, my second episode with Dr. Scott Kretschmar. Um, I hope you found value in the discussion, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.